songs and lyrics. You're listening to Radio Pulpit 657 AM and Radio K Pulpit 729 AM with me, Mark Penrith. Your host, who am I? I am a husband of one wife, Liesl, a father of three children, Caitlin, Catherine and Thomas, and a pastor at Central Baptist Church in Pretoria. Shout out to everyone tuning in this morning. I love that we have regular listeners from all over South Africa and beyond. It is always super exciting to speak to you on Fridays, a brand new Super exciting feature. Uh, Table Talk with Mark is now a podcast. You can check out irono.fm or Apple Podcasts to listen, subscribe, rate, and review. Thank you. I really appreciate it. When you do, I do want to thank all the listeners from last week who tuned in and asked questions such as, and I, there were so many of them, I can't list them all, but such as JP uh, right at the very end, Gogo Hannah and Mary, thank you for your interactions. It was good to be with you. How can you join the conversation this morning? Well, first of all, all hear what we're going to be talking about today. It's going to be interesting. We're going to be asking the question, what is the church's task in the world what is the church's task in the world and i'm using as a launch pad for the discussion a book by a friend conrad mbewe uh, god's design for the church a guide for african pastors and ministry leaders and praise the lord i am able to give away a few copies to unique and interesting questions uh, that will come in via the studio line a little bit later. I do thank each and every one of you um, when you do come in with questions. I'm looking for original questions and I am looking forward to hearing them. Uh, When you do, we'll pass you back to uh, the sound technician this morning, who's Maxwell, making sure that the lights stay on, pressing all the buttons, answering the calls, writing down all the information, um, and very busy behind the uh, behind the panel uh, at the back. Maxwell, it's always good uh, to serve the Lord together with you. This morning we are live on 657 AM Radio Pulpit. We are also on 729 AM Radio Cape Pulpit. We are on Facebook Radio Pulpit Radio Console. We are on DSTV Channel 882 Open View Channel 607 and we are streaming live to our website www.radiopulpit.co.za Wherever you are tuning in, welcome. It's good to be spending Friday morning together with you. You know what I just realized? I I invited you to engage, and then I didn't tell you how you can engage. Uh, If you've got a pen and paper or a cell phone handy, uh, write down our studio line. We are looking forward uh, to interacting with you. The numbers are 012, that's the Pretoria dialing code, 012-334-1322. 012-334-1322 or... 012-333-8692. 012-333-8699. Uh, Let me repeat that. 012-333-8699. Do drop us a, 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 a message. We are really looking forward to engaging with you and interacting live on air. I do realize that uh, uh, behind the scenes, uh, the technicians are busy sorting out the Zoom call in order to accept our uh, Zoom guest um, 4SA, who God willing will be joining us this morning. But in the meantime, let, let me begin by engaging with the topic of what is the church's task in the world. Conrad makes the point that 
in Africa, we are really good at makeshift solutions. Uh, he gives the illustration of going overseas and needing to use a two-prong plug in a three-prong socket and not having the necessary converter. And uh, although he's not an electrician, and I encourage you not to try this at home or abroad, um, taking the top of a pen and inserting it into the top socket, and that opened up the two holes, and he was able to uh, get power in. But we are used to making a plan in order to get things to work. Uh, we have a, a, a phrase in South Africa, a boer marker plan. We are a nation of plan makers. Well, very often, because of the great need around us, the human needs, um, we often allow the church also to become a jack of all trades, and yet um, all too often a master of none. Conrad says the church has a mission, and the mission is stated in God's word, uh, the mission is important for us as a church to execute on. And he points us to God's word. He takes us to the end of the book of Matthew, um, to the Great Commission in Matthew chapter 28 from verse 16 uh, through to 20, where we read that Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I'm with you always to the end of the age. And, and Conrad makes the point, and it is a well-made point, that Jesus alone has the authority over the heavens and over the earth and over everything in them that Jesus is the Lord and the master of all creation and very specifically Jesus is Lord and master of his church friends he rules the world as its ultimate judge and also providentially in other words nothing happens in this world without his allowing it to happen in other words the world would be a, a much worse place than it is he controls all human activity primarily in order to bring about the salvation of his people. That, that's, what, that's what Jesus Christ seeks to do. He came to earth to seek and save the lost and now he orchestrates all things to do exactly that. Conrad makes the point that in the Great Commission we are given three primary tasks. Now, first of all, let me say that the Great Commission's main point is that we are to make disciples. It's the main verb uh, in the sentence. We are to make disciples. Maybe a point of application if you're listening in right now, friends, is to ask yourself the question, are you being discipled? If that was Jesus Christ's main command, main uh, great commission to his church to make disciples, the question that you can ask yourself is, are you being discipled? Or if you consider yourself a Christian of any degree of maturity, how are you involved in discipling others? Conrad goes on to make three points under the making of disciples, and that's this. We're to be a going people, we are to be a baptizing people, and we are to be a instructing people or a teaching people. As far as a going people is concerned, uh, Conrad points out that this is to ensure that the gospel is proclaimed to all nations so that individuals come to Jesus Christ in repentance and faith. 
that is the mission of the church to make disciples and one of the ways that we make disciples a primary way or a starter way is that we go to the nations um, our churches have missions boards and have missionaries on notice boards or missionaries on slides before the service or pray for missionaries during our prayer times friends uh, the church is to go about mission making so that the world might hear the gospel of Jesus Christ this is something that we do it is part of the great and glorious mission of God's church here on earth and so my encouragement to you even as you are a member of a church is to figure out how is your church doing missions how can you pray for the missionaries that your church supports how can you support the missionaries that your church supports missionaries need more than just financial aid although they need nothing less than financial aid but they need so much more than financial aid um, do you know personally who the missionaries are by name consider sending them an email or friending them on Facebook so that you can keep up to date with what's happening in their lives send them a note from time to time if you pray for them tell them that you prayed for them it would be such a great encouragement to them uh, on the mission field I, I remember 11 years ago I, I went to uh, the first church uh, where I pastored Crystal Park Baptist Church and as I arrived there I, I knew no one in the city that I went to or hardly anyone in the city that I went to um, I, I didn't really know anyone in the church that I was pastoring and there were only like five people in the church that I was pastoring I, I remember just the isolation and the loneliness praise the Lord I had my wife with me and my kids uh, they certainly took care of some of the loneliness but 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 the isolation from a body of believers a church which had sent me Midran Chapel the isolation from those saints the isolation was made easier because of this and people like uh, Robin and Kim Woolley and Dave and Heather Brown and many others in fact far too many to name would regularly phone Liesl and I they would from time to time drive across the city from Midrand where they worship um, to Benoni to where we were uh, restoring a work um, and they would come and visit us uh, for a Sunday service and and spend time with us for lunch after the service it was so wonderful to ha to know that there was a church behind us a church that was involved in the restoration or planting process it gave us courage when we needed courage and comfort and care when we needed comfort and care in many ways those people were Jesus Christ to us as they as they shared our joys and our frustrations at times listened to our stories and encouraged us and reminded us us of our main task on the mission field that Christ had given us friend if you're listening this morning can I encourage you um, to spend some time um, even today finding out who the missionaries of your church are and spend some time this weekend sending them a note never mind how brief it is to encourage them on their mission field uh, the next section or the next section of the Great Commission after we talk about go and make disciples uh, we talk about what we need to do with the disciples that we have gone to and we need to baptize them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit it was the way in which those who repented from sin and trusted in Jesus Christ for their salvation proceeded to publicly express their faith in Jesus Christ and consequently formally join others in the local communities of Jesus' disciples. 
baptism became the entrance into the local church. Ah, we see that in uh, in the book of Acts, chapter two, don't we? On the day of Pentecost, uh, as the Spirit falls, divides in tongues of flame, rests on each of them. They are filled with the Holy Spirit. What do they do? They go out and they begin to proclaim the great and glorious wonders of God to those who were in Jerusalem and there were tons of people who heard them speaking in languages that were known to men languages such as now Edomites and Mesopotamians and Creoles from Crete <laughs> no Creoles are probably not from Crete Cretans <laughs> it sounds a little bit like Martians um, and even Roman citizens were gathered in Jerusalem at that time uh, people from the far east all the way to the far west uh, of the known world were gathered in Jerusalem for the great feast of Pentecost and as they declared the great and glorious wonders of the Lord Peter stood up from amongst their midst and he declared the gospel message with power that they had killed Jesus I mean that must have come as a great shock to them that they had killed the Christ but that Jesus had risen from the grave ascended into heaven and was seated in authority and power on high I mean, they quivered in their boots they were cut to their hearts and they cried out to the disciples what then must we do to be saved and the answer was this believe and be baptized all of you um, and and what we find on that day in Acts chapter 2 verse 42 is that as many as believed were baptized and that day 3,000 were added to their number what we see there is a a process towards a formalized church membership for lack of a better word we see church membership is comprised of those who believe the gospel they had put their faith and their trust in Jesus Christ as their Lord and their Savior but not only that subsequent to belief they had been baptized just as Jesus Christ had commanded in the name of the Father the Son and the Holy Spirit but not only that they were added there was a formalized uh, commitment to the local church the early Jerusalem church and we see that church flourishes as a consequence they were devoted to the apostles teaching to the breaking of bread to prayer and to fellowship canonia and daily the Lord was adding to their number those who are being saved I mean just a point because we are speaking about baptism baptism was not essential to salvation it must have been mentioned as something uh, in terms of the eunuch that was baptized uh, and said see there's water what's preventing me from ba being baptized uh, it must have been mentioned to him that baptism was important because Philip the evangelist had been speaking primarily about the person of Jesus Christ from the book of Isaiah the eunuch needed to do this as an expression of his faith in the Lord Jesus Christ and so just a note on baptism baptism doesn't save uh, we put our faith and our trust in Jesus Christ as our Lord and our Savior and Christ alone is our salvation but baptism becomes a step of obedience um, a step of uh, commitment a step of public confirmation of our faith as we go through the waters and are committed and joined to a local church um, but that's not where it ends because I think some people um, hear the gospel message as people uh, intent on making disciples go into the world as they are, believe they are possibly baptized but Jesus' commission doesn't stop there it continues a present participle they were to be 
teaching or instructing as an ongoing activity everything which Jesus Christ had commanded his disciples. So whereas conversion and baptism were once-off events, the teaching ministry was to take place in an ongoing way for the rest of the lives of the disciples. This was not to end. Friends, we need to recognize uh, that there is a role for the church to play in terms of edifying the saints, teaching and preaching and proclaiming the good news of the gospel and, and teaching people what God has revealed in his word, the 66 books of the Bible. Uh, churches all across our city, all across our nation are responsible in terms of their mission to continue this activity, this great commission which God has given them. And so maybe just by way of application as you think about that, the truth is you need to be attached to a local church. Uh, you need to be attached to a church which teaches God's word, that you might be instructed in it. And in being instructed in it, you might grow in your faith and be discipled. Not only that, for those of you who go to church on Sunday, uh, it is wise uh, to meet regularly with other brothers and sisters who can encourage you, even more so as you see the day approaching. And so synagogue together on Sundays, certainly um, gather together, assemble together on Sundays. Uh, but at the same time, meet with one another, fellowship with one another, break bread in one another's houses, um, uh, join Bible studies, uh, study God's word together, be be encouraged by one another and be, um, what's the right word, vulnerable to one another so that friends in the faith, those who are walking to the celestial city alongside of you, um, the new Jerusalem, might encourage you and exhort you and rebuke you and move with you um, toward the mature man, the image of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. I hope that's an encouragement to you. I have thoroughly enjoyed Conrad's book. Um, in many ways, it reminds me of another good book that I read many years ago, Nine Marks of a Healthy Church, by uh, an author called Mark Dever, who uh, is a pastor at Capitol Hill Baptist Church. It reminds me very much of that book. Uh, Nine Marks was written specifically to highlight uh, a few marks of, of churches which had maybe been lost in our contemporary society. Things like um, gospel proclamation, a, a focus on conversion, discipleship, biblical leadership and such like. Conrad's book certainly reminds me of that, but Conrad's book is is colloquial. It sounds like it was written on African shores. The illustrations appeal uh, to the reader. Um, they certainly appeal to me, and his application uh, appeals to real-life examples that we see in churches all around us. Let me remind you of what the title is. It is God's Design for the Church, a Guide for African Pastors and Ministry Leaders by Conrad Mbewe. And it is available uh, from imprinton.org or from any good bookstore, I would imagine. And you can certainly find it on online bookstores as well. Friends, the intention this morning uh, is to talk to you about um, various questions that might come out of what I've just spoken about in terms of God's design for the church, the church's mission, uh, or other questions that you might have on your heart or in your mind um, this morning. And so let me again tell you how you can engage with us. You can phone into the studio, and the studio number is 1322 Maxwell standing by waiting for your calls uh, looking forward to that if you can't get through on that number 
the second number is 012-333-8699. We are looking forward to engaging to you. If you're listening in this morning, um, another way that you can interact with us is on Facebook. Always do enjoy um, hearing from you and hearing who is um, uh, talking and engaging. I do see that a number of questions have come through, and so we'll engage with the Facebook questions until callers come in live. Uh, Dirk Fonsell says, blessings. Uh, great to have you listening in with us, Dirk. Uh, Will Dean says, morning family and pastor markets. Jen in Joburg South, just tuning in now. Uh, looking forward to the Friday blessing. Uh, thank you so much for joining us, uh, Will Dean. It's uh, good to have you with us. Uh, Penny, a long-time listener, says, good morning, Mark and tech team. Mark, you said to ask the question again this morning. Ah, we didn't get around to your question last week, Penny. Thanks so much for reminding me that there was no time to answer last week it is this I have a family member who has joined the Seventh-day Adventists are these people saved Penny asks her life has changed dramatically however they all seem to live under condemnation I've done research and see that they live largely by the words of a certain Betty G White I think it's Eileen G White but but I'm hearing what you say whom they regard to be on the level of the Apostle Paul is this not heresy and sorry for the long question, but I really would like to know how to speak to this precious cousin. Well, that certainly is a really, really good question. And uh, I just want to open up some writing, which I've done in the past in terms of Seventh-day Adventism um, and their understandings and uh, faith. And as I open that up, let, let me start by saying uh, I too know a number of Seventh-day Adventists, Penny, um, and uh, some of those who I've engaged with I certainly believe are saved um, as I've asked them questions around the gospel uh, their answers have been very clear in terms of salvation is through Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior they've been able to articulate that his death was as a substitute for their sins they've been able to articulate uh, that his resurrection is an important part of the gospel and shows that he has victory over sin and over death and over the evil one and they are able to articulate and um, very clearly in terms of their own um, uh, faith uh, that uh, they needed to repent turn away from their sin and put their faith and their trust in Jesus Christ as their Lord and their Savior these are things of first importance as the Apostle Paul um, writes to the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians chapter uh, 15 uh, he says that these particular things are of, of first importance that that the gospel message is that Christ died Christ rose and that we must repent for the forgiveness of sins and that is articulated of course in the words of Jesus Christ at the end of Luke chapter 24 however as a sect of Christianity Seventh-day Adventist um, do believe um, a couple of things that certainly would be at odds with orthodox or mainline Christianity and uh, I'll detail some of those out now. I think most troubling is as I've spoken to other Seventh-day Adventist friends um, they have had very strange views of the person of Jesus Christ um, uh, divorcing him in terms of his 
um, of his equality from the person of God um, and have relegated the person of the Holy Spirit um, to a mere force rather than uh, than uh, a third person of the Godhead equal in substance co-equal in substance um, and essence uh, with God so one God in three persons Father Son and Holy Spirit I mean really interestingly as we were going through the Great Commission at the end of the book of Matthew we spoke about baptism being in the name of the Father the Son and the Holy Spirit they're not the only people uh, who struggle with the Trinity we've also seen that and spoken about that I think last week uh, when we addressed oneness Pentecostals uh, who believe in a type of modalism uh, that God at times is father at times is son and at times is spirit and um, these would be ancient heresies that we received down through the ages from Arianism and and certainly needed to be marked and avoided Seventh-day Adventism has its roots in a 19th century movement um, that anticipated the imminent appearance or advent of Jesus Christ. So a number of their key leaders started to make predictions that Jesus Christ was going to appear in 1840-something, 43, 44, something like that. When Jesus Christ didn't appear, obviously, um, there was a great disappointment that's what they talk about theologically a great disappointment and a scurry to try and figure out well what theologically might have happened and as an answer they talk about things like Jesus entering into a heavenly temple um, as opposed to coming in bodily form to earth this would this would go against all orthodox and mainline teachings on eschatology the study of the future things when we talk about a study of the future things, um, uh, the, the, the main streams would include um, amillennialists, premillennialists, and postmillennialists. Um, but basically all of them talk about an imminent return of Christ in literal bodily form uh, to the earth. Now they might work that out in slightly different, in slightly different ways. Um, but in the end, all of them are panmillennialists believing that, that Christ will imminently return in bodily form. Um, the Seventh-day Adventists had a very um, distinct view on on predicting when Christ would return and so as a result when they were greatly dis disappointed they came up with a theological reason uh, that could at least give them some semblance of understanding as to why the prediction uh, didn't work out. But this idea of prediction and prophecy continued and a key prophet amongst them was a lady named Eileen G. White um, and she had, uh, it's purported, up to 2,000 visions um, and, uh, and, and became a central and galvanizing figure within the movement. Not all, but some regard her teachings, which Penny goes to your question um, when you spoke about the Apostle Paul uh, and your question in particular said that they believe and regard her teachings to be on the same level as the Apostle Paul. Some believe that her teachings are deuto-canonical. In other words, it's a, it's a second canon or body of divinely inspired words. Now we see that in cults <laughs> all across Christendom. Um, uh, we see that in the Mormons who have the writings of Joseph. Um, uh, oh, I forget his I forget his surname. We see that in the writings of the Jehovah Witnesses who believe um, that the Watchtower in many ways supersedes uh, the writings of Scripture or more clearly interprets the writings of Scripture, and then they lend authority to that. 
in terms of the Seventh-day Adventists, they give very, very high view of the writings of Eileen G. White. The problem with that is that not all of her writings sync with Scripture, and many of her theologies go beyond Scripture. And when I talk about Scripture, I'm talking about the received Word of God, the 66 books of the Bible, which are clear to understand um, and are clear to be believed upon. As a, as a result, uh, they have adopted a number of very specific distinctives, um, and some of them uh, are, are, are wildly different to Orthodox Christianity. Um, they would include uh, things like Satan being the scapegoat and that he will bear believers' sins. Well, in truth, that would be a heresy. <laughs> Jesus Christ is the the Lamb of God that takes away the sins of the world. I think of the book of Revelation and, and I think of just the, the marvel and the wonder and the joy that is ascribed to him forever and ever in praise as the saints uh, cry out in uh, Revelation chapter 5, um, cry out to him uh, and John sees one like a slaughtered lamb standing in the midst of the throne, the four living creatures among the elders having seven horns and seven eyes which are the seven spirits of God sent into all the earth the bottom line is the fact that Jesus Christ died as our atoning sacrifice is a central theology in God's word in uh, uh, Revelation chapter 5 verse 12 we hear the eternal song of praise which rises up to the throne of God worthy is the lamb who was slaughtered to receive power and riches and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and blessing to take away from Christ's sacrificial death and to give it to another to give it to Satan um, is certainly troubling uh, not only that um, but um, we also uh, understand that they identify Jesus as Michael the Archangel. Interestingly enough, that's certainly something that the Jehovah Witnesses do as well, a doctrine that denies the true nature of Christ. The true nature of Christ is not that he is a created being or that he is an angelic being, a messenger of God. The true nature of Christ is that he is God with us, Emmanuel, that he is the firstborn of all creation, that, that he is uh, the, the ruler and head of the church, that he holds the keys to death in Hades. Um, that Jesus Christ is the very essence of God, God from God and light from light and true God from true God of one being with the Father, um, that there is one God in three persons. And that would certainly be a, a heretical belief um, to deny the true nature of God. Um, they teach that Jesus entered a second phase of his redemptive work in 1844, well, that's just plain wrong. On the cross as Jesus died, we read in the book of John, in terms of John's account of, of the crucifixion, uh, we read this great and glorious cry that Jesus made as he died. It is finished. The payment was made. It was done. It was complete. The wrath of God had been satisfied by his own son, Jesus Christ, our Lord and our Savior. There is no need for him as high priest to, to make any further payments for sin because as priest he is also the sacrifice that was made once for all, we read in the book of Hebrews. I get excited when I talk about Jesus, as I think all believers do. Because he is so glorious and he is so great and he has done such wondrous deeds for us. It's right that he excites us. 
Um, and then uh, as a distinctive, um, the Seventh-day Adventists uh, hold to Sabbatarianism or Sabbath-keeping, um, which, which, which is the belief that the day which is set aside for the worship of God, the proper day set aside for the worship of God, uh, is the, uh, the seventh day, uh, the Sabbath, uh, Saturday. And so they would worship on Saturday as the Jews worship on Saturday. However, what we see in the New Testament is that believers um, started to worship God on the Lord's Day. And the Lord's Day was Sunday. We see that in the book of Acts. We see that in the New Testament epistles in Corinthians. And we also see that um, in the book of uh, Revelation, the Lord's Day being a day of worship. And so uh, in accordance with the biblical reality that God's people were worshiping Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior on the Sunday, um, we also worship him on a Sunday. Guys, I want you to call in. I'd love to speak to you about God's design for the church. We spoke about God's mission for the church. We spoke about Mission sending, going into the world. We spoke about making disciples as the main thing. We spoke about teaching and we spoke about baptism. Uh, that was kind of where we launched off this morning. I, I want to talk to you about those kinds of things. I want to hear your questions and I want to hear them live on air so that I, I know who I'm speaking to. Let me remind you of what the telephone number is again. Um, and Maxwell is standing by to take your call. You can write this down so that you've got it. It is 012 one three two two or alternatively you can call on O one two three 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 eight six nine nine. Let me say one further thing though Penny, just for your confidence. Um whilst it does seem to me that many of those who are in the context of the Seventh day Adventist Church put undue focus on legalistic um on legalism on a set of rules in order to make themselves right with God. It has also been my experience that there are those within the context of that sect rather than a cult within the context of uh, Christendom who have put their faith and their trust in Jesus Christ as their Lord and their Savior. And that is really, first of all, what is important. And so as you engage with your, was it your cousin or your niece? I actually forget, Penny. Um, but as you engage with them, make sure that you put the gospel first, the gospel of grace alone, grace rather than law, the gospel of Christ alone, Christ rather than, than any other sacrificial atoning sacrifice that could be made. Make sure that you put the gospel of faith alone, faith rather than faith and works or a mix of works or works. Make sure that you put the, the, the importance of scripture alone in front of your family and that, that God's word, God has spoken and he's spoken by his word that in many ways that those who go contrary to God's word or those who puff themselves up with uh, with revelations and dreams and all manner of things um, uh, that all of this needs to be subject to what God has revealed uh, in his word and make sure that you put the glory of God uh, on display always as you contend for the faith you do not need to be contentious for the faith we see that in the book of Jude from verse 17 through to verse 23 um, there's no need to be contentious for the faith as we contend for the faith but rather seek um, to 
to to encourage and to exhort and to instruct uh, and to love your family member that they might uh, that they might see God's word as it truly is wonderful and see Jesus Christ as he truly is um absolutely uh, fantastic thank you penny for your question really appreciate it i do see that other questions have come in um via uh, Facebook and so I will address uh, those now but again I do encourage you to give us a call on the studio lines we are standing by and looking forward to speaking to you I see that there's a question here that came in from Glenn Williams Glenn I, I'm busy trying to figure out how to how to find your question um, it has it has just disappeared uh, let me let me uh, let me see if I can open this up it was supposed to come up on a board but uh, but I can't figure out how to get that to work right now uh, here it comes great and uh, the, the there it is uh, I like how AW pink put it in his classic work the sovereignty of God and by the way Glenn Williams is a lecturer and a um, part of the staff at Mukanyo Theological College um, Glenn reads excellent books the sovereignty of God is maybe one of the best books I often talk about my top three um, books uh, other than God's Word being Fox's Book of Martyrs being Bunyan's Pilgrim's Progress and Be the Valley of Vision although right now I'm really enjoying Piercing Heaven um, as a as a uh, an addendum to Valley of Vision for those of you who read Valley of Vision but maybe if I had to give you my top five one of the books that I would have to sneak in after that would be The Sovereignty of God by A.W. Pink um, Glynn gives a fairly lengthy quote and I'm going to read it it says The Sovereignty of God what do we mean by this expression? We mean the supremacy of God, the kingship of God, the godhood of God. To say that God is sovereign is to declare that God is God. To say that God is sovereign is to declare that he is the most high, doing according to his will in the army of heaven and among the inhabitants of earth, so that none can say his hand, can stay his hand, or say unto him, What doest thou? To say that God is sovereign is to declare that he is the Almighty, the possessor of all power in heaven and earth, so that none can defeat his counsels or thwart his purpose or resist his will. To say that God is sovereign is to declare that he is the governor among the nations, setting up kingdoms, overthrowing empires, and determining the course of dynasties as pleaseth him best. To say that God is sovereign is to declare that he is the only potentate, the king of kings and the lord of lords. Such is the God of the Bible. I like that quote, Glenn. Thank you very much. Uh, and that was related to a previous uh, comment uh, around the sovereignty of God. As I, I look down, there's a number of greetings that have come in. Gay uh, says, Morning Mark. Uh, Penny uh, says, Joseph Smith, uh, who was the Mormon leader. Thank you so much for that, Penny. I appreciate it. Uh, Erica Grunewald says, Morning Mark. Uh, is it so that the Seventh-day Adventists uh, do not believe in eternal punishment? Oh, a great, great note, uh, Erica. Um, this is true. Instead of eternal punishment, they believe in something called soul sleep. Um, believing that, uh, or uh, in terms of, let me say what happens after we die. Uh, firstly, they believe in soul sleep. Uh, they believe that uh, on death, um, we uh, we we basically uh, sleep for a period until Christ comes again, and when He comes again, there will be a judgment. Um, but at that judgment, they believe in annihilationism, um, believing that uh, rather than being punished eternally. 
um, we will be annihilated if we have not placed our faith and our trust in Jesus Christ as our Lord and our Savior um, uh, and um, and and uh, I, 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 it's a it's a slightly different view to the Orthodox view the Orthodox view is that um, is that uh, upon death we are joined with Christ in paradise according to his words on the cross to the thief uh, that was there and uh, subsequent to death and subsequent to paradise we are translated at the second coming of Jesus Christ upon which there is a great white throne judgment and after the great white throne judgment those who are in Christ uh, are uh, spend eternity with him in heaven and uh, those who are not in Christ um, are consigned uh, to an eternal hell um, and punishment uh, where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth on the line from Kensington in Cape Town we have John John thank you for joining us this morning hello hi John can you hear me I think uh, uh, if John is listening on the radio uh, did bring you in uh, it looks like the line had either gone dead or you had been cut off. Uh, hopefully you phone back and we can engage with you uh, a little bit later. Uh, we have more uh, greetings from Mariah saying thanks for the word. Christ is our rock. Praise the Lord. Penny says thanks. What an awesome and comprehensive answer. Thank you so much, Mark. Uh, Dean uh, says, in all fairness, your view of Seventh-day Adventists is limited and warped. You don't even know the proper name of one of its founding members. Please make sure of your facts before you speak them on the topic on a public f platform. Thanks, Dean, uh, for your uh, uh, for your words. Um, I had said Eileen G. White, I think. Uh, let me just see here. Uh, Ellen G. White, sorry. Ellen rather than Eileen. Thank you for that correction, Dean. I really appreciate it. Folk, as we continue our discussion, uh, we have a caller on air. Uh, caller, uh, uh, who's with us? Hello. Hi there. Hello. Hi there. Uh, Hello. Uh, hi there. My name, I can hear you, yes. Uh, who am I speaking yeah. to? to uh, John. Hi there, John. Yeah. You are the... You know, you are discussing a very important uh, subject about John. I'm I'm so I'm so sorry to do this, but but the line is dreadful. It keeps on crackling. Uh, I, I'm not too sure if you have another line that you can call in from. Can you hear me now? I can hear you. Yes, that does sound better. Does it sound better? Sure. Oh no, John! John, it's cra it's crackling again. I, I'm I'm so sorry. Um, but if you have another line, we if you if you have another phone, you can call us from. Um, please do. But uh, very difficult to speak to you. Um, w with the crackle, it, it's actually almost impossible to hear you. Uh, in the meantime, we do have another call that's come in. Uh, 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 uh the caller is going to leave a question. Uh, and not come live on air. Folk, as we as we move to another topic, um, uh, let me continue a conversation in terms of the church and God's role uh, and and God's design 
for the church and God's design for the church in Africa. Um, as we think about God's design for the church in Africa, we ask the question, why is the gospel so important to the church? And that, I guess, relates to much of what we have been talking about up until now. Churches, by and large, across our country have lost the gospel but continue in existence because it reminds us that institutions can sometimes lose their content, their character, um, and even their, mich- their mission. Um, we think of the way that uh, all across our country, uh, often wire fences get ransacked for raw materials um, to get uh, bought to the backyard at home or turned into a place of some kind of uh, car. Uh, Conrad reminds us, uh, it tells a story of being a kid and putting a car together out of wire, um, a wire car that he would zoom around the backyard with his friends. And they would pretend that this was a real car. But in actual fact, I mean, it wasn't. It was made out of wire. <laughs> they might have dreamt that it was a Lamborghini or a Porsche, but in actual fact, it wasn't a Lamborghini or a Porsche. It was, it was kids enjoying time uh, and enjoying the imagination. The gospel, um, when it is not being proclaimed in a church faithfully, um, is almost like that church becomes a wire car, um, zooming around the backyard, uh, but in actual fact, not the real deal. The gospel needs to be front and center to what we as believers believe and what we as the church proclaim. What is the gospel? I do think that the the best uh, articulation of the gospel comes from Luke chapter 24. In Luke chapter 24, we have uh, the final instructions of Jesus Christ to his disciples before he ascends into heaven. Um, each one of the Gospels ends at a different moment uh, in, in, in time. The book of Mark is the first one to draw to conclusion. It ends at the tomb. Uh, the next gospel which which comes to an end is the gospel of John. It, it ends on the Sea of Tiberias as the, as the disciples are heading toward Galilee in order to see the risen Christ. The book of Matthew, where we read the Great Commission from, it, it ends in Galilee. It ends on a mountain as Jesus is instructing many disciples as they are worshipping him and putting their faith and their trust in him. But but as as the, the gospel comes to an end, what it doesn't talk about is the ascension of Jesus Christ into heaven. That falls to Luke. Luke tells the end of the story. He, he takes the disciples back to Jerusalem um, and uh, back to a time where, where Jesus gives them the final instructions before he ascends into heaven, before he goes back to his father um, and becomes the prequel really uh, to the book of Acts. In Luke's gospel, Jesus says the following to his disciples. These are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. And then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures. This must have been the greatest Bible study of all times to understand the scriptures and said to them, thus it is written that Jesus should suffer and die on the third day and rise from the dead, and that repentance for the forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations beginning from Jerusalem, and you are witnesses of these things. And behold, I am sending you the promise of my Father um, upon you, but stay in the city until you are clothed with power from on high. Um, the gospel there articulated by Christ can be reduced to three phrases um, from verse 46 and 47. Number one, Christ should suffer. Number two, 
and on the third day rise from the dead. Number three, and that repentance for the forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations. What we have there is the gospel in a nutshell. Jesus died, Jesus rose, repent for the forgiveness of sins. Our response to the gospel call, to the gospel message, according to Jesus, is that we must repent, turn from our sins, and put our faith and our trust in him. It is certain that those that that repentance will result in works just like the fruit of a tree um, uh, the, uh, works uh, follow repentance um, but faith in Christ is the root of the tree of salvation um, repent, uh, the works of salvation being the fruit of salvation friends we've come up for 10 o'clock I, I do know that there are now a number of calls that are holding we've come up for 10 o'clock we are now going to go to a song break and uh, after that we will return for the second hour uh, of Table Talk. Uh, not just the Ten Commandments, but, but detailed in all of the Mosaic uh, law, uh, detailed how the Jews were to worship God. And one of the clear teachings is that they were to worship God on the Sabbath. Uh, I give you just by uh, example uh, one, one verse in the book of Exodus uh, when we actually get the Ten Commandments as we get to Exodus chapter 20. The fourth commandment uh, is very clearly remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. You are to labor six days and do all your work. But the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. You must not do any work, you, your son or your daughter, your male or female servant, your livestock or the resident alien who is within the city gates. For the Lord made the heavens and the earth, the sea and everything in them in six days. Then he rested on the seventh day and therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and declared it holy. And so I make the point right up front that the Sabbath was given to believing Jews to be kept as an element of their worship, uh, an element of their worship to God. Jesus, being a Jew, came into a world um, where Sabbath was kept, and he kept the Sabbath. He went to synagogue uh, in order to worship uh, on the Sabbath. That's an important start to the conversation. The next part of the conversation is the church, and maybe a distinction between the nation of Israel, the Jews, and the church uh, of Jesus Christ as we see it in the New Testament. The church wasn't established um, in the law of Moses. The church was established on the day of Pentecost when the Spirit came and filled the believers in that upper room, maybe 120 of them, and they proclaimed the great and glorious works of God and people came to faith and trust in Jesus Christ as their Lord and their Savior. The church was established on that great and glorious Pentecost. And from that moment on, the church began to worship, and it made sense that those who were Jews were worshipping on uh, on a Saturday. In actual fact, there's nothing wrong with worshipping God on a Saturday, uh, or if you're in other parts of the world, another day of the week. Um, the important thing is that we worship God with all our heart, with all our mind, and with all our strength. But what we see as a pattern in the book of Acts is a movement of the church. As the church starts to move away from Jerusalem as the center of power, Jerusalem which would have been Jewish converts, uh, toward 
Asia Minor and beyond, as it gets to Antioch, the capital in Syria, and as it goes to Ephesus, the capital in Asia Minor, and as it crosses the 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 uh, Adriatic Sea, the the Mediterranean, and, and goes even further westward, um, as more and more Gentiles uh, come into contact with the Word, believers start to worship. God start to worship Jesus Christ on the Lord's Day um, rather than the Saturday. Um, and so we also know uh, that as believers were meeting, even from the day of Pentecost, uh, they were meeting not just on the Sabbath, but they were meeting on every day of the week, spending as much time as possible together and in God's Word. But um, but let's go and take a look at Acts chapter 20. Acts chapter 20 being a very, very key chapter in the progression of the book of Acts. Uh, in it, um, we have uh, Paul later on in the chapter speaking to the Ephesian elders, the elders from Ephesus. But in Acts chapter 20 verse 7, we have... Um, uh, 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 Paul reviving a young man that fought, fell asleep during his teaching. It turns out that Paul liked to talk a lot, um, uh, that he used up many words and went very, very late into the night. Uh, we read in Acts chapter 20, verse 7, On the first day of the week, we assembled to break bread. In other words, the believers were assembling. The breaking bread there most certainly would have referred um, to sharing communion together, the Lord's table. Um, and Paul spoke to them because that's what we do uh, when we assemble, when we gather, uh, when the church comes together. Uh, we, we, we do communion uh, and not only communion, we also hear and sit under the teaching, the reading and the teaching of God's word. And that certainly seemed to be the pattern in Acts chapter 20 verse 7 a pattern established or, or change in pattern even established in 1 Corinthians chapter 16 we have another text uh, where we see this progression um, yeah Paul is speaking to the Corinthian believers and he's particularly talking about a collection for the saints he's talking about taking up offerings uh, the bottom line is there were major problems in Jerusalem by the time 1 Corinthians was written and those major problems meant that there were a number of people that were that were incredibly poor in Jerusalem. You'll remember on that first day of Pentecost, thousands of people came to faith. And as you read through chapter 4, chapter 5, chapter 6, you read of just the church growing in thousands and thousands. Now a number of years would have passed, um, but the church in Jerusalem was heavily oppressed. They'd come under persecution. There were major difficulties amongst the saints in, in, in Jerusalem. And so Paul writes to the churches... And uh, he speaks about this in many of his epistles, in many of his letters. And he encourages them to take up an offering for their brothers and their sisters uh, who are so hard-pressed. And so in 1 Corinthians chapter 16, we read now about the collection for the saints. Do the same as I instructed the Galatian churches. On the first day of the week, each of you is to set aside something uh, to save in keeping how he is a prospering so that no collections will be needed to be made when I come. When I arrive, I will send with letters those you recommend to carry your gift to Jerusalem. If it is suitable for me to go as well, they will travel with me. And again, we see in this epistle that the believers had begun to meet. Um, they had begun to be in each other's company to such an extent that gifts and offerings could be taken up on the first day of the week, the day that we call the Lord's Day. It is right, by the way, John, to acknowledge that Jesus did call himself Lord of the Sabbath. 
Um, and that was mainly in opposition to the Pharisees who persistently, as you read through the Gospels, come against him, um, tirelessly um, come against him and, and call him to observe laws and commandments of men which they had created in order to protect their Sabbath worship. And Jesus, in response, says, well, what is a man to do if his donkey falls into a, into a pit? Surely he would take his donkey out. Um, we do good, um, even on Sabbath days. And then he declares that he is Lord of the, of the Sabbath, which indeed he is, because he is Lord of Lords and King of Kings and Commander of all. Thank you so much for that question. Really do appreciate it. Um, a number of uh, of comments and questions have come in uh, via WhatsApp to Riesel. Uh, I see you, brother. Um, and he says, thanks in advance. He asks a question regarding prophecy in 1 Corinthians chapter 14 and how that might look now in the church. Uh, we certainly will get to that uh, shortly. Maybe just to tell you uh, listeners how you can engage with us uh, live on air today. The phone in to the studio is 012-334-1322 or 012-333-8699. You can drop uh, comments on Facebook. Uh, the Facebook page is Radio Pulpit, Radio Console. You can also send in voice notes or messages to WhatsApp or Telegram. The number is 082-657-2729. You can also tweet on at 657AM. We are looking forward to engaging with you this morning. Um. Uh, just a note that came in uh, from Glenn. He posted a couple of documents. Uh, Penny does say thank you for that. Um, and then Glenn says, uh, have you ever considered the following? In New Testament times, slaves were forced to work seven days of the week, which would have meant that they worked on the Sabbath. Yet Paul never gives them any instructions not to work and gather together, nor for slave owners to release them. When Joshua and the Israelites marched around Jericho, they marched for seven days, meaning they would have to have marched on the Sabbath. The Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. He's quoting from Mark chapter 2, verse 27. And Glenn, you also raise an important topic in terms of the Sabbath, um, in terms of people working and the way the church would have worked. It does seem, as we read in the book of Acts, that uh, the meeting was a late-night meeting, which would have accommodated uh, those in the church who had to work, whether they be slaves or whether they be free men, uh, that were obligated to work even on the Sunday uh, and therefore had no day off. And yet uh, they were gathered together uh, in such a way that uh, Paul was speaking to them very late at night and through the night um, so that a young man fell asleep in the window um, while he was listening. I don't think Paul was boring. <laughs> I think the young man was in all likelihood uh, just incredibly tired, having worked an entire day and now sitting and listening to teaching just couldn't keep himself awake any longer. Let's now consider um, prophecy from Corinthians chapter 14. I'm going to just open up Corinthians chapter 14 uh, in front of me uh, so that I have the text uh, in, in, uh, in, in right in front of my eyes and, uh, and take a look at chapter 14. Now chapter 14 is an incredibly long chapter. It deals with prophecy and it deals with tongues. Um, but uh, Teresa's question comes particularly from verse 29 and verse 30 and then again uh, in verse 39. Um, so in verse 29 and 30 we read the following. Two or three prophets should speak 
and the others should evaluate. And then in verse 30, but if someone or something has been revealed to another person sitting there, the first prophet should be silent. And then again in verse 39, uh, we read uh, the following. So then, my brothers, be earnest uh, or be eager to prophesy and not forbid speaking in other tongues. And his questions are this. Please clarify those two verses uh, and what is the difference between a revelation and prophecy. And then secondly, in terms of the end of the chapter, it says that we must desire to earnestly prophesy and speak in other tongues. Uh, what did that mean, this desire to preach or desire to hear God's voice. Uh, great questions, Teresa. I'm going to answer them as best as I can. Let me just acknowledge up front that uh, even amongst uh, Bible-believing Christians, there is a degree of difference in terms of how this particular chapter is constituted. And I think, uh, particularly in our day and age, uh, just like the previous question, uh, there will be an element of uh, grace that we have to give and acknowledge that, uh, that on both sides of the argument, men and women are genuinely desiring uh, to understand what the text says and to apply the text in meaningful ways that God might be glorified in and through their lives. In verse 29 and verse 30 it says two or three prophets should speak and the others should evaluate. What it's talking about there in 1 Corinthians is an abuse that was happening within the context of the church. It would seem that everybody out of a desire to one-up each other uh, was desiring to bring a word um, to bring a word to the assembly um, and they had almost like an open mic and uh, and everybody uh, wanted to get their shot uh, at speaking uh, on the Lord's day at speaking at the assembly and so there was a cacophony of voices it seemed to have degenerated into an element of confusion um, and Paul is addressing them in order to bring order uh, to the worship service to regulate the worship service. Uh, he spends quite a bit of time talking about tongues in particular and when it comes to tongues he's saying guys you need to know and understand what's been said. In other words don't have everyone speaking in tongues and no one understands what everyone's saying rather have um, rather speak in a word which is understood if nobody understands the word then rather keep silent uh, these things are to be done for our edification what happens if an unbeliever comes in he'll think that you're all mad <laughs> if you're just standing up and, and babbling and not making any sense rather you need to have an interpreter a person who has the gift of interpretation there that can interpret that tongue and I would make a case that the tongues that Paul is speaking about is languages that are known for men um, and miraculously given by the Holy Spirit for the edification of the church in 1 Corinthians chapter 14. Similarly, um, and I'm not 100% sure if that's the right word, um, Paul speaks of prophecy uh, in chapter 14. And he's saying that you can't just all speak uh, everybody kind of adding their voice so that there's this massive confusion no everything needs to be done in order and one at a time and not just one at a time because you might very well be there all day if you've got like 500 people that want to speak no rather two or three are to speak and even when they speak uh, in terms of delivering their prophetic utterance uh, you are to test all things you to test what they're saying against what you know to be true whether that be the word of God revealed um, or whether that be true according to what revelation they had of that stage and so two or three prophets should speak and the others should evaluate that would be um, my understanding of verse 29 uh, verse 30 but if someone uh, or something has been revealed to another person sitting there the first prophet should be silent 
Um, in, a, in other words, uh, you, you, can't, you can't speak together. Uh, this isn't kind of like a prophetic sing-song uh, where you have uh, melodies and harmonies and basses and trebles and, and sopranos and everybody is speaking at the same time. No, these things need to be done in order. I mean, there's application here, right, to, um, to us today. Uh, there's great applica- application to us today uh, in terms of the way that we do church services. Our church services, in like manner, uh, should be ordered. Um, the elements of our church service have been revealed by Almighty God. We know what we're to do on the Lord's Day as we come and gather to praise His name. We are to see God's word in baptism and in the ordinances. We're to hear God's word as it is read. We're to preach God's word, proclaim it and explain it and edify the saints. We're to sing God's word to one another in songs, hymns and spiritual songs. Um, We are to, uh, everything needs to be around God's word, the elements of our worship service. But not only that, the elements of our worship service should be done in proper order. Maybe at this point, just to encourage listeners, um, a few weeks ago in December, there was a table talk that aired a discussion between myself, Isaac Pinto from Central Baptist Church in Pretoria and Seb Goldswain uh, he was at that time from Hillcrest Baptist Church around worship and they made a case for uh, for orderly worship. Both are worship leaders within the context of large churches and they gave some insights in terms of what God glorifying worship looks like drawn from the New Testament. Uh, The last part of your question, Teresa, is related to verse 39. So let me read verse 39 to you so that we have it in our minds again. It says, So then, my brothers and sisters, be eager to prophesy and do not forbid speaking in other languages. Uh, And then he closes off with the word and the frame that I've used quite a few times. But everything is to be done decently and in order. And uh, Teresa asks the question, well, A, uh, I guess, what is that prophecy? Um, And B, um, in terms of verse 39, uh, what is this desire? What does that mean to desire? And let me say prophecy in the New Testament uh, could be talking of foretelling, and very often it is. We see that over and over again. An example of a prophet in the New Testament would be Agabus, who prophesies in the book of Acts. Uh, there are other examples. I mean, there's many examples of prophets and of prophecy uh, in the New Testament. Um, but the word prophecy can also mean uh, to bring a word, uh, to explain God's word. The prophet not only uh, foretold, but the prophet spent a large part of his ministry forthtelling, um, rather than foretelling what was going to happen in the future, forthtelling God's word to God's people in ways which uh, which challenged them, rebuked them, exhorted them, um, and uh, and ultimately glorified Jesus Christ. And so uh, I, I would say as I look at the book of 1 Corinthians chapter 14, I think what Paul, the main idea that Paul is trying to convey in 1 Corinthians 14 is that all things are to be done with edification in mind. That's what he starts off the chapter with in 1 Corinthians chapter 14, uh, verse 1 to 4, uh, or 1 to, ah, my eyes fail me, 1 to 5. He starts off by saying that everything should be done for edification. And so my encouragement would be, um, as we think of our corporate worship services, which 
1 Corinthians 14 is all about. Uh, we must think of, of doing the things that will build up the saints, that will build them up in their knowledge and in their love for Jesus Christ. And first and foremost of that is the reading of God's word and the teaching of God's word. Around that, the entire worship service um, will be structured. The singing of God's word will lead up to that. The praying of God's word uh, will be part of that. Um, we, we focus on the word of God and the edification of the saints. That those who come in, who aren't believers might hear the word of God and might respond appropriately by putting their faith and their trust in Jesus Christ as their Lord and their Savior. A couple of other comments that have come in. Um, I read from uh, Facebook. Uh, Dean says, let's leave out the Old Testament uh, because you relegated to the Jews. Why did Paul go on uh, or go to the synagogue as his custom as if the new church... Um, bah, it's, it's uh, as if the new church started gathering on the first day uh, of the week. That's a that's a really good question, Dean. Thanks so much for asking it. I appreciate it. Um, and the answer would be this: uh, Paul was a Jew. He was a a Pharisee of Pharisees. He calls himself. He was educated in the great university city of Tarsus. He knew God's word, and he had a deep heart for his people. I mean, something of his heart for his people can be discovered in the book of Romans, um, where, where he, he looks at the Jewish nation and, and, and asks the question, if, have they rejected the Messiah? And if they've rejected the Messiah, are they done with? Uh, and, and he even pleads in between uh, Romans chapter 8 and 10 that, that if it was possible, he, he would lay down his own life um, uh, in exchange for theirs. That, that's how much he loves them. That's how much um, he cares for them. That's how much he wants to see them saved. At the same time, then, um, if that was his, uh, if that was his heart to see Jews saved, um, how did he express that? Well, as he went from uh, city to city, um, Paul's custom, and that's what the, that's what you're quoting here. Paul's custom. Paul's custom is that he would go to the synagogue to those who were God-fearing Jews, and he would begin by proclaiming Jesus as Messiah uh, to them. He would begin by explaining to, to them who Jesus is, um, how glorious and, and great Jesus is, that Jesus is ultimately Emmanuel, God with us. He'd present the gospel to them, that Christ died, that Christ rose, and that all men must repent for the forgiveness of sins. He would go to the Sabbath keepers first, you could really rightly say. Um, but he wouldn't go to the Sabbath keepers for long, because in truth, the Jews uh, would uh, gnash their teeth at him. They would drag him out of cities and stone him. They would bring all manner of persecution against him and they would drive him out of their synagogues. And then Paul would look for other alternatives. His custom was to go to the Jews first. Um, but in practice, where we see the fruitfulness is as Paul goes to the cities and begins to proclaim the gospel, not to the Jews, but to the Gentiles. And we see great numbers uh, coming into the faith. Uh, thank you so much much uh, for that question another question that came in via Facebook um, is that there was no change from the Sabbath uh, to Sunday in the times of the Apostles however after the death of the Apostles Sunday was substituted for the Sabbath day uh, through the commandment of men but not the commandment of God um, maybe just to that uh, statement um, uh, there are 
Bible verses that we have read this morning that demonstrate that God's people began to gather and to break bread on the first day of the week, the Lord's Day. Um, and we see that that was their custom even as we get to 1 Corinthians uh, as an epistle in terms of gathering their tithes and their offerings on the day in which they were gathering. As for as for the commands that come from God, it, it, it is noteworthy, um, and I think that question came in from Dean as well. It is noteworthy to note that the Old Testament law given to Moses, summarized in the Ten Commandments, so you've got uh, you've got Ten Commandments, are all repeated in the New Testament. So, for example, uh, uh, in the epistle uh, to the Ephesians, Paul says that children are to honor their mother and their father, that they might live long in the land. Uh, we are told in the New Testament in many places not to murder, not to steal, not to give false witness. Uh, we are told not to uh, not to lie, not to perjure ourselves, not to covet. Um, we are told to honor the Lord our God with all our heart, our soul, our mind, and our strength. We're told not to blaspheme. All of these commandments are repeated but one. Uh, the command to keep the Sabbath is found nowhere in the New Testament. It is the one command, it seems, under the law of Moses that was given to the people of Israel in order to differentiate them in part from the nations around them and also to regulate uh, their worship, that they might worship God on a day which he found suitable to his own praise and glory. But that command is nowhere repeated to the New Testament church. Um, and so that would be a response uh, to that question. Thank you so much for asking it. How can you join the conversation this morning? Uh, I am reminded by Maxwell uh, that uh, the, the lines are open. You are more than welcome to phone. The telephone number is 012-334-1322 or alternatively 012-333-8222. Uh, and those telephone numbers are also on the Facebook uh, page if you browse to uh uh, radio pulpit radio console uh, you'll see the live stream there and in the comments of the stream uh, those particular numbers are uh, made visible before the break we started to talk uh, about the gospel and i do for a moment want to go back um, to luke and then do a bridge and a crossover in terms of the importance and the criticality of the gospel to the new testament church and and in terms of really saying that the gospel is part of god's design for the church. Uh, in the book of Luke, uh, as we read, uh, Jesus had said that the gospel message was that Christ died, Christ rose, repent for the forgiveness of sins. In other words, we're saved by faith alone in Christ alone, uh, and this is a grace that comes from God alone. It's not of law, it's not of works, uh, it's not of man. It is ultimately all to God's glory. Now we see that repeated over and over again in the book of Acts, as we hear first in the sermons of Peter proclaiming the gospel message on the day of Pentecost and then proclaiming the gospel message again uh, over and over in the chapters of Acts and then handing the baton, so to speak, over to Paul who continues this gospel proclamation. And the words are always the same. The elements of their testimonies and gospel proclamation always include the same elements. Christ died. He died for our sins. Friends, he died as a substitute for sinners just like you and me. But not only that, Christ rose from the grave. He rose from the grave to, to demonstrate that God accepted the payment which Christ had laid down. 
Not only that, we, as a, as a result of that gospel proclamation, that, that, that news, that, that salvation is available to us, we are called upon to repent, to turn from our sins, and to put our faith and our trust in Jesus Christ as our Lord and our Savior. There's application in the book of Luke for you if you're listening today. You might be wondering, how can I be saved? Um, do I need to go to church? Do I need to um, get baptized? Do I need to pick a specific day? Do I need to eat certain foods? Do I need to wear certain clothes? Do I need to act in a certain way? Well, the truth is, as we are instructing in what God says, we will learn more and more about how God desires us to live this life. But at its root, salvation comes to us through faith in Jesus Christ, and the call upon your life is to repent from your sins and to cast yourself upon the finished work of Jesus Christ on the cross. After that, it would be wise for you to find a good Bible-preaching church where they read God's Word and make the explanation clear to you on any given Sunday so that you can grow in your understanding of who is Jesus, who is God, and what you need to do to live a God-glorifying works, uh, life, works that were prepared for you before the foundation of the world, according to Ephesians chapter 2, verse 10. But it starts at its root with faith. And the fruit on the tree um, then becomes the works, the evidences of our salvation. I mentioned 1 Corinthians chapter 15 uh, and Paul, and I just want to read Paul's words to the Corinthian church in chapter 15. He says, I want to make it clear to you, brothers and sisters, the gospel I preached to you, which you received, on which you have taken your stand, and by which you are being saved, if you hold to the message I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I passed on to you as most important what I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas and then to the twelve and then to five hundred brothers and sisters at one time, and then to James and all of the apostles, and last of all, uh, to as one born at a wrong time, he also appeared to me. For I am the least of the apostles, Paul says, not worthy to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am, and his grace towards me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, yet not I, but the grace of God that was with me. Whether then it is I or they, so we proclaim and so you have believed. The elements of the gospel message are in what Paul calls that of first importance, the death of Christ and the resurrection of Christ. And he reminds the believers that that is what they put their faith and their trust in. Uh, I do love uh, uh, the gospel. Um, it is a joy to my soul. I hope it's a joy to yours too. Um, hi family, uh, who gave the days, the names, and how do we know which is the exact day called Sabbath as the body of Christ? Sunday, does it really mean the idle sun? Well, uh, in truth, uh, Mabakang, uh, thank you so much for the question. Um, who gave the names the names? Uh, the names are, uh, are throwbacks to history. Uh, they would have come into language uh, adopted by by all manner of mechanisms as language evolve and uh, adapt and uh, and bring in from cultures around them. But by the time that the Jewish scriptures were written, it was clear that the Sabbath was the Sabbath, that it was the seventh day of the week, what we would now call Saturday. When we get to the New Testament, um, the calendar, the Roman calendar was different. The names were different, and certainly the names related to Roman gods and to things that the Romans called 
uh, found important um, even their months are related to gods and to deities um, the calendar ha- uh, that they adopted uh, had certainly had different names uh, the bottom line is though that uh, in actual fact um, the writers in the New Testament don't call it Sunday uh, they call it the seventh day um, they call it according to what the Jews would have under uh, the first day of the week they call it according to what the Jews would have understood uh, and what we translate to our Sunday for that was the first day of the week um, in the Roman world uh, and so it's not really a matter about one calendar being right or wrong based on how the words came to us uh, it's more better of what God's word says in terms of when worship happened in the Old Testament under Israel uh, worship happened on the seventh day of the week in the New Testament as the church uh, established and as it became increasingly Gentile uh, worship was happening on the first day day of the week. Thank you so much for that question that came in via WhatsApp. Again across uh, to um, uh, to uh, uh, Facebook, a number of questions coming in and a number of statements being made. It's a little bit difficult to track all of them but I do want to recognize Pierre Broadrake who says, morning, thanks so much always enjoy listening to the show. Thanks Pierre for saying hi. Maybe the first time that I've seen a Pierre Broadrake uh, saying hi on the show and so uh, greeting goes out to you uh, today. Uh, see Glenn and uh, Dean are engaging in an ongoing conversation on Facebook. Uh, I'm glad that you guys are able to engage and communicate. Charmaine Erasmus says that that was a beautiful song and maybe just to say that the song that we played at the break was I Will Carry You by Ellie Holcomb and we do thank the Lord for God glorifying music when we hear it. Um, I, I actually stepped out of the studio at that time to speak to Uh, Maxwell who's producing the show today Um, but I am glad that we have uh, such excellence uh, in terms of uh, song and production at Radio Pulpit. Um, As we continue to um uh, to go through questions and go through answers a number more have come in uh, Janice says greetings Pastor Mark what are the reasons for believing a pre-tribulation rapture from Janice in Cottonville so today has been the day for all kinds of uh, <laughs> of controversial questions we've had from Teresa uh, speaking in tongues and prophecy we have had um, uh, from Penny uh, Seventh Day Adventism and now from Janice we have eschatology or the study of future things and she asks for a reason for believing in a pre-tribulation rapture. Janice, I can give you um, my number one uh, reason for why I hold to a pre-tribulation rapture. I love reading the New Testament. Uh, I love reading it. Uh, I try and read it uh, at least once every three months. Sometimes I get to read it a little bit more than that, Uh, particularly during the end of the year. I sometimes speed it up a little bit um, and read it three times uh, over the last three months. And once a year, I try and read the New Testament in a week, or actually the the Bible in a week, um, but that that requires a, a, a massive uh, work commitment. As I've been reading through the New Testament over and over again, the book of Revelation, uh, the book of Revelation uh, really stands out to me, something that is missing. Um, and the reason why it stands out to me as something that is missing is because it is so Um, visible in the first three chapters. If you turn in the back of your Bible um, to the last book of the Bible, the Revelation, um, you get 
um, a glorious book which tells the story of future things. Maybe just to say, Janice, that the controlling verse in the book of, of Revelation can be found in chapter 1. In chapter 1, um, we read the following. Uh, we read that I, John, your brother and partner in the affliction, kingdom, endurance that are in Jesus was on the island called Patmos because the word of God and the testimony of Jesus, that's verse 9. I was in the spirit on the Lord's day. I mean, just interestingly enough, we have the Lord's day again appearing in Revelation chapter 1 that uh, John was, uh, was worshipping on the Lord's day. And I heard a loud voice behind me like a trumpet saying, write on a scroll what you see and send it to the seven churches to Ephesus to Simra to Pergamum, to Thyatira to Sardis to Philadelphia and to Laodicea and then he turns around and he sees Jesus Christ it's a glorious vision he turns and he sees this voice that spoke to me and he sees seven golden lampstands and among the lampstands was one like the son of man uh, that son of man being a very clear reference to Daniel uh, a, 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 a a phrase, a title of God himself, the Son of Man, dressed in a robe with a golden sash wrapped around his chest, and his hair of his head was white as wool, white as snow, and his eyes like a fiery flame, his feet were like fine bronze as it is fired in a furnace, and his voice like the sound of cascading waters, he had seven stars in his right hand, and a sharp double-edged sword came from his mouth, and his face was shining like the sun at full strength, and when I saw him, I fell at his feet like a dead man, and his right hand came on me and said don't be afraid I'm the first and the last the living one I was dead but look I'm alive forever and ever and I hold the, the keys to death and Hades and therefore write what you have seen what is and what will take place after this now all the rest was just because I love reading that picture of Jesus Christ he certainly is most beautiful but you get in verse 19 the controlling and um, purpose statement for the book of revelation most most books in the bible uh, the author will very clearly tell you what the book is about the book of john uh, in the second last chapter says that these things were written that you might believe that jesus is the son of god and that by but is the is the christ the son of god and that by believing in him you might have eternal life in his name the book of jude for instance says that i wanted to write to you about this common salvation but I found it necessary to write to appeal to you to contend for the faith that was delivered once and for all to the saints. Now the book of Revelation was written to tell us what is and what will take place after this. What was, what you have seen, what is and what will take place after this. What happens then from, verse, from chapter 2 and 3 is we have seven letters to the seven churches that were spoken about uh, in verse 10, uh, 11 that we, wrote, that we read earlier. We have seven letters to seven churches. And the word church can be found, if I remember correctly, from the last time that I did a, 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 a concordance search through those two, I think they found like 24, 29 times. That, that rings a bell. Right to the church in Laodicea, right to the church in Philadelphia, right to the church in Sardis. Over and over again, the word church appears. And then, nothing. The bottom line is, what is to come in the book of Revelation is a series of judgments that fall on the world. Um, Revelation is a series of cycles of God's wrath being poured out on planet Earth. They get, they get more and more vicious as the book goes along. Uh, there's bowls and there's seals and there's trumpets uh, and and. And as the book of Revelation builds to its ultimate climax, the one thing that's missing from the peoples of the earth, 
The one thing that is absent is the church. The church does appear again in the book of Revelation, but it appears right at the very end of the book as the new Jerusalem descends and comes and and we are united with Christ in glory forever and ever. And as we read other parts of scripture, we understand that as we get to the end parts of the book, like Revelation chapter 19, and Jesus establishes a, a kingdom um, that, that uh, uh, in... Um, uh, before the great white throne judgment in chapter 20 as Jesus establishes his kingdom uh, in chapter 20 verse 4 and following through to verse 6 we know from from other parts of uh, of uh, of God's word that um, uh, that we as saints will be there uh, reigning and ruling with Jesus Christ there's parables which talk of of uh, of wonderful opportunities for us uh, in God's word uh, to celebrate with Jesus Christ but what we are ultimately waiting for as the church in terms of the next moment of unfulfilled prophecy uh, is an imminent rapture it will a secret rapture secret not that no one will know that it happened because i think everyone will know that it happened well at least i hope that there's enough believers on earth um <laughs> that people will know that it happened but when the rapture occurs um it will be secret in that we don't know the day or the hour Following that will be a seven-year period which the book of Revelation fleshes out, these judgments on the earth. And following that seven-year period, and in particular uh, the great tribulation that lasts three and a half years, uh, there will come a second coming of Jesus Christ where he will absolutely obliterate those who remain in defiance against him thank you so much for that question janice and janice also just makes a connection to the church uh, that she attends uh, in benoni and a shout out that i gave to their pastor last week janice please do say uh, to brent that i say hi uh, from uh, from mark on radio pulpit um we do have another question that has come in um hi mark if we admit and ask god for forgiveness like david in psalm 51 lovely lovely psalm according to the bible um will it happen why then did God punish David in the manner that his son from Bathsheba had to die? And that comes in from Pietrus in Pretoria. Pietrus, that is, that is a wonderful question, and 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 one that is worth dwelling on and thinking through very very carefully. So, friends, when we put our faith and our trust in Jesus Christ as our Lord and our Savior, we are transferred from one kingdom into another. We are transferred from darkness. And we are brought into the kingdom of light. We, be, we cease to be sons of Satan, uh, according to Ephesians chapter 2, and we become sons of God, children of God, according to John chapter 1. It is the most amazing exchange. Um, Jesus takes our sin on himself, and in exchange he gives us his, his robes of righteousness so that God no longer sees Mark, a sinner, um, or, or any other saint uh, as a sinner. He sees his own beloved and dear son who laid down his life that we might live. Uh, it is a marvelous exchange, and it is a transform transforming moment in our lives. But sin still bears consequence. On the one hand, um, sins that we have committed in the past bear consequence even into our present. 
And so uh, it might well be that one was a thief in the past, and like Zacchaeus uh, invited, uh, uh, you remember Zacchaeus in the sycamore tree, invited Jesus into his house and Jesus said, truly salvation has come onto this house this day. Well, what did Zacchaeus need to do? Well, he, he didn't just need to believe in Jesus. He needed to make recommends, uh, recompense uh, because sins bear consequence uh, and we are to own up to the consequence of our own sin. Now, in the context of believers, uh, you, you, you speak of David and that and that terrible punishment that he uh, the terrible consequence uh, which he experienced uh, in terms of uh, his adultery with Bathsheba and the death of their firstborn son maybe to say this as we come to faith in Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior a, a process a progressive process of sanctification begins sanctification is us being made holy us being set apart to God there's a sense that our sanctification, our holiness is positional. It's in Christ. We are holy because we are in Christ and therefore God does not count our sin against us. But there is a truth that we still sin. In fact, in 1 John chapter 1, we read that if any of us says that we are without sin, um, we, we lie. We make God out to be a lie and the truth is not in us. No, uh, when we sin, we to confess our sins. And sometimes the sins, even of believers, bear consequence give you an example in the book of Acts I, I suspect although it's not clearly stated uh, in the text in Acts I'm fairly certain it's Acts chapter 6 we have the story of Ananias and Sapphira and um, in that story um, they sin they withhold um, some of the uh, of a property which they had sold and they said that they were going to give to God they don't give it all they withhold some of it and as a result they die on the spot, uh, the apostle, uh, um, uh, I'm fairly sure it was Peter, <laughs> I'm looking at verse at chapter 6, but now I'm thinking it's chapter 5, Acts chapter 5 from verse 1, uh, Ananias and Sapphira, um, uh, and they are speaking to Peter, and um, Peter says that they've lied to the Holy Spirit, they fall down dead, there were consequences to their sin, and what we learn here is, number one, when we are saved, positionally, we are made holy. But when we are saved, a progressive sanctification starts in our hearts so that I'm no longer the man I was 20 years ago when I put my faith and trust in Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. I'm also not the man I was 10 years ago. And God willing, in two weeks' time, I won't be the man that I am today. I'm growing in my knowledge and in my love of Jesus Christ and in my sanctification. I am being progressively moved towards the mature man. And such, I'm, I'm hoping it is true for all believers. But what about for those believers who fall into sin and refuse to repent, refuse to turn from their sin as an ongoing act of repentance, refuse to confess their sin and come out of their sin. Well, to them, um, there is dire warning. Not so much their salvation, but certainly discipline that comes from God. So, for example, in Hebrews chapter 12, there's an entire chapter which is set aside just so that we can understand how God's discipline works in the life of a believer. That if we do not turn away from our sin, if we do not uh, turn to God and leave our sin each and every day, denying ourselves, picking up our cross, following him, then God, just like a good father, will discipline his children. And the word discipline doesn't always mean a... a, 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 a kind of a corporal punishment the word discipline is gymnasia it's the idea of sweat and toil and disciplining your body um, in, in terms of, of really strenuously going about your faith uh, well 
if we do not turn away from our sin, just like a good father, a good human father, disciplines his child by whatever means he deems fit, so too our heavenly father will discipline us by whatever means he sees fit. There's another verse to consider in terms of that question, and I really like the question, and it's in a chapter that we know very well as we come to the end of the show uh, this uh, this morning. In in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, Paul is talking about corporate worship. The reason why we know it so well is because Paul lays down for us the communion table. Uh, he talks about uh, the breaking of the bread and the sharing of the cup, it being a new covenant in my blood. He talks about us doing as often as we do this in remembrance of me. Um, and he says, for as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. But then there's a dire warning to believers who are in sin. Who refuse to turn from their sin. He gives this caution. Whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself then, and so eat the bread and drink the cup. For anyone who eats the eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks a judgment on himself. And that is why many of you are weak and ill, and some have died, uh, or some have fallen asleep. Um, falling asleep being a euphemism for for death. What we see in this text, and what Paul is saying, is is believer. Uh, you need to examine yourself. If you are sinful, you need to turn from your sin, confess your sin, and turn back to Jesus Christ as your Lord and your Savior. We don't teach some kind of perfectionism on this side of eternity. Certainly there will come a time where even the presence of sin is dispelled for us. But for now, the power of sin has been broken in our lives, and we are to live in God-glorifying ways so that God can be glorified in our lives and in our, uh, in our lives and in our testimony. When we don't do that, Paul says to the Corinthians, some of you have even died as a discipline which comes from God. Turn from your sin and turn to God. Listener, there's application all over the place from tons of stuff that we've spoken about today, but, but maybe from this in particular. Are you a believer? Have you put your faith and your trust in Jesus Christ as your Lord and your Savior? Are you living presently with fruit that is not clean, pure, holy, undefiled, beautiful, a testimony which doesn't show a watching world the power of your salvation and the awesomeness of the work that God has done in you. Friends, turn from your sin urgently. Turn to Christ. Confess your sins. He's faithful. He's just. He'll forgive you. Jesus has paid the penalty of your sin. The power of sin has been broken in your life. If necessary, or when necessary, um, reach out to someone in a local church who can counsel you, who can walk alongside of you and journey with you. We started off this morning by talking about making disciples. Be discipled, even in the midst of your sin, that you might that you might mature and that you might be made holy and sancti and be sanctified through and through. I really do appreciate that question. Uh, it came in from Pietrus. We appreciate your interactions with us. There are other questions, and I'm so sorry we're not going to get to them. Uh, Ndishini uh, f uh, in Soweto, uh, hopefully, if you send in your question early next week, uh, we will certainly talk about it uh, from Matthew 26 and 27 uh, in terms of the reference to dogs. Uh, that is a fascinating topic. I was reading it this morning uh, with my daughter in the car as I was driving through to Pretoria. We've come to the end of our show, all the questions that we can handle uh, for one day. Um, our prayers, each and every week, go out to all the elders and deacons who hold the line in local churches, 
as well as to our missionaries who serve in foreign fields. Our prayers for and much respect to first responders, police, our defence force and all those who dispense justice, firefighters, paramedics, our nations, nurses and medical personnel, as well as correctional facility officers, our president, his cabinet and all members of parliament. You've been listening to Table Talk with me, your host. We're going to be going to news shortly and so until next week Friday, walk wisely, live holy and testify zealously.